Maybe you want to write a book, launch your tarot business, or even fall in love. You'll learn neuroscience techniques and sacred rituals from mental health professional Bryn Bamber. That's me. Everything you need to take that next step towards your purpose. Welcome, Jesse. Welcome, everyone. I am super excited. Jesse is the millennial money witch, and we're going to be talking about all things witchy. And then, yeah, we'll talk about money and how to start to welcome more of that into your life. But before we start, Jesse, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, to anyone who's not familiar with you. Sure. My name, well, obviously my name is Jesse De Silva, and I specialize in helping people kind of see and diagnose like whatever blocks are holding them back from finding their most abundant and satisfying and fulfilling lives. I mostly work with entrepreneurs and business owners, and a lot of that focuses around business strategy, but also the magical manifestation methods that kind of make business growth feel magical. That's really what it's about. So I'm all about where the practical meets the esoteric and witchy. Yeah. And for everyone listening to the podcast, Jessie's been featured in Forbes. So she's like legit business and super witchy, which I love that like dichotomy. I feel like that's a big part of me is like, I love science. I love neuroscience. I love mm-hmm. research and I love like, woo, very deep. Absolutely. Woo. I mean, I feel like mostly like a lot of science is really just discovering what the spiritual world and what we've formerly known as magic and science just finds the physical explanations for them. Yeah. That's what I have found. So. Yeah, they go together. These are not like opposing camps. I totally right. agree. So yeah, my first question is, how did you become a witch? When did you find that part of yourself? Like, what's your origin story to becoming the millennial money witch? Well, I had a spiritual awakening around like 31 or so. What was happening at that time is that I felt like I was having a lot of synchronicities kind of lining up and I'd always experienced that to a certain degree, but this was really taking it to a whole new level where, you know, I'd always had the thing in the past where I would think of someone and they would call me or text me, but this was like, I would have a dream of something mundane happening and then it would happen within the week or I would say something to someone and then somebody totally separate in a like different conversation would use the same words back to me. And Mm. I had this moment where I was like, this is too weird. This, (laughs) this feels like something that's trying to get my attention. I also started seeing a lot of repeating numbers and I just had this feeling like, I feel like something's trying to get my attention. And I looked, my gateway drug really was manifestation because I knew a little bit about that. I mean, my mom had made me watch The Secret when I was a teenager. 
but I hadn't really kept up with any practices or anything. And so I started going down the rabbit hole around manifestation and I started falling in love with that topic. And then it really brought me into a whole like spiritual, I would say reawakening because up until then, like, you know, I had crystals and I was always into tarot readings and anything witchy like that, but I really hadn't gone like into a deep dive. It was mostly like if I was, if I saw a psychic, I would love to get a reading. I would make my friends get readings with me, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And this prompted me to start looking into why would these synchronicities happening? What could be trying to get my attention? And the answer I really like encountered was that I had gifts and that's basically what spirit, my guides, God, the universe, whatever you want to think was trying to bring my attention to. I was pretty unfulfilled in the career I was in and I started taking certain practices more seriously. So for example, I started like really take like taking an interest in delving into tarot. I started like practicing with automatic writing and what I was realizing is that I had, like I had claircognizance, clairsentience, and it started, it started bringing sense to a few things in my life that I hadn't previously really thought of. So, you know, I think everybody's familiar with the term empath, and I always had that kind of ability to physically feel what other people were feeling, not just emotionally, but often physically as well. Even now when I do readings, I will feel like if somebody has back pain, my back will start hurting. Like I really do like experience it that way. And when I discovered the names for the different like psychic gifts, the different clairs as they call them, claircognizance really stood out to me because basically it's, you know what you know, you don't know why, you don't know how, you just know it. And it's often the trickiest one to explain or for people to take seriously and so that was like kind of gave me permission to fully pursue it because up until that point I had been a journalist I'd been a lawyer and Mm -hmm. everything was about hard evidence and proof and even just knowing that that was something that that could that could appear in people gave me permission to really delve into it and accept that maybe the things that I knew came from like somewhere else, whether you want to think of it as coming from the divine or the collective consciousness, I was picking up on, you know, radio waves of people's thoughts, not in the sense that I can read people's minds. It's more that like I can target into how they're feeling and know exactly how they view a lot of their problems or a lot of their life. And I can find, and I can share solutions with them that, are effective in a way that other things have not been like a lot of people have told me that they walk away physically feeling better after just speaking Mm. to me. And so that was really what started it. And because I just kind of rolled with it, I hadn't really had any kind of religious or spiritual affiliation, like strong one in a few Mm -hmm. years at that point, I'd grown up Roman Catholic and had since left that behind And this really became like the center of my, of my spirituality and my spiritual beliefs and my spiritual practices. And so when I really looked at 
what is what is it that I'm doing on the daily and how I kind of live my life and the rituals I do, started realizing it was really more aligned with witchcraft. And that felt like a really empowering term for me, for me to identify as a witch, just not only felt like I had a framework from which to work on my spirituality, but mm -hmm. it also felt like a coming home almost like, right. oh yeah, this is what I do. And this is how I feel. And almost like taking my power back from, I don't know where, but this feeling of like having demonized the idea of witchcraft or having right. it demonized in front of me for so many years of my upbringing, it just felt like a return to something that my soul had been lacking. Yeah, I love that. I, I resonate with so many parts of your story. I did a workshop in this modality called Healing from the Core, where we actually did the, you know, when you were talking about like feeling in your body, someone has back pain, you feel right back pain. We actually did exercises like that that was practicing. Like you'd be put in a partner and then you'd have one person would be more of the like, client type role and then one person would be more the practitioner and then we would like talk about it and I would if I was the practitioner I would say oh I feel something weird in my left hip and then the person would say yeah I have like a shooting pain in my left lower back like and so you could like check and kind of build that muscle and it was so cool to be this was quite a few years ago to be in a room of like adults, I think I was like, maybe, I don't know, 24, 25. And to have this like be a thing where we're like practicing and like, to identify that that is something that some of us have like a natural inclination to, but it's also a muscle. It's also a skill right. that can be practiced and harnessed and made stronger. So yeah, I love that part of your story. And then the other thing I was really relating to is like intuition, which I don't know if Claire cognizance is like the same as intuition or different, but like I've worked a lot with intuition and I lived at an ashram for two years. That's kind of my like origin story is like I burnt out and then I moved to an ashram. And at the ashram, we literally like would study intuition in the sense where you're like, okay, I think this is my intuition. I think my intuition is telling me to take this course or not take this course or date this person or not date this person. And then to run it like a science experiment where it's like, okay, I think this is what my intuition is telling me. And then like to check, like, how did it go? how was the date or how was the course? Like, did it feel, once you were there, did it still feel right? And to, again, build this muscle of maybe claircognizance. I don't know if that's what, exactly what claircognizance is, but that these gifts or that the clairs are things that we all, maybe some of us have maybe more of a natural inclination to but they're also things that can be strengthened and grown right and I really think that all the clairs are just different ways that intuition presents right because you can have it through different ways like the clairsentience through your body and a lot of people oh, talk right. about how their intuition presents as 
physical sensation, right? Like even like, oh, that uh, had a gut feeling. We hear that one all the time in, in the spiritual community and outside of it. People know what it is to have like a gut feeling or something not to sit right or to feel queasy with something. That's usually a really good indication of intuition, a good marker for a lot of people. And I think a lot of professions that can even be in these more scientific, strategic, analytical kind of fields, they're still using their intuition as well. And they'll call it intuition, but they're almost looking at it as something that's like a sixth sense that's more scientific and like, oh, that's different than the intuition that psychics have. But really, it's mm-hmm. no different. I mean, I always joke that almost every lawyer I know is a psychic because they just know, like they know when to ask a certain question or they know when to right. pursue a certain line of questioning or they know to research a certain term Anytime you have those kind of pulls, that is your intuition and it just comes in different ways. Some people almost hear words as if they're listening to something and it's just, you just have to be open to however it presents to you, but you're able to learn to, to hone your intuition, to encompass all of those clairs. You are able to tap into all of them. It's just like you said, a muscle that you have to train. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I I do a lot of inner child work with my clients. And sometimes my clients will like see their inner child in a white dress or something. They're very visual. And other times clients will have this like heavy feeling in their heart or in their belly when we're working with their inner child and no visual cue. So like even a song, right? Like how many people have you know, needed something and a song has come on the radio and it's like, oh, that's exactly what I needed to hear in this moment. I mean, it can present in any, any sort of way. Yeah. I love this. Okay. So the way that you and I got connected, I told you this story already, but I'll tell the listeners is that I was going through my own identity crisis I don't know if crisis is the right word, but but the way I talk about the work that I do in the world and the, the type of clients that I work with, and I was calling myself a mental health professional, and then sometimes I was attracting clients with like very intense trauma, which I can work with, but core energetics, which is my main training, is not as well suited for that type of client, and I think my unique gifts and strengths are also not suited for that type of client. You know, I work really well with clients who do have trauma, but who I'm not there necessarily their first point of contact on their healing journey, that they do have some ground and we can build from there. And so I was going to call myself a trauma-informed coach and that felt better, but kind of bland. And then I had you know, just walking out of the bathroom one morning. And I was like, what if I called myself a trauma-informed witch? And I laughed. And then I, my next immediate thought was like, I would never do that. I could never do that. But it kind of stuck with me. And so I started looking into it and started looking into the witch wound, which is what took me to your website. And I read an article. And then anyways, we got connected after that. But 
for people listening, can you talk about what the witch wound is? Maybe you can share your own journey with it if you feel comfortable sharing that. Yeah, what folks can do if they are resonating, like if they think they might have the witch wound. Absolutely. So what really a witch wound is, is it's this kind of space between feeling compelled to call or identify with being a witch and then also feeling like you had experienced I could never do that. That's not appropriate. That's not who I am. Like you have so many reasons or so many ego trappings. What will people think of me? Like that sounds crazy that keep you from identifying with it. And really what it typically is, is it's a wound around like it, and it shows up multiple ways. There are multiple ways that a witch wound can present. But it's something that's basically keeping you from identifying with your own internal magic and power. And it really does like show up in multiple ways. One of the most basic and easy ways to see that is you were saying where it's like, oh, I can't call myself that. Like, what will people think? And when we think about these wounds, we have to look back to the witch trials that went on for a few centuries because it's all related to that. Essentially, our culture, and I say our culture being like the worldwide culture, like this is something that's present everywhere, is this idea that it's wrong to be a witch, it's evil to be a witch, and it can lead to destruction and chaos and a loss of your life, a loss of your loved ones. It can lead to isolation. And that fear because the witch trials were carried on for so long and because it resulted in this you know mass killing of so many thousands of people that it's a fear that's basically embedded inside of us where there's this natural resistance to identifying in that way because it means that we could be in danger essentially and so that at the most basic definition is what a witch wound is. And it can show up in a few different ways. For example, I say that, you know, there are a few ways. There's, you can either be somebody who self-sabotages. So maybe you start to see the payoff of your power and you immediately start to get in your own way because to be powerful is to gain the attention of people who may hurt you, right? Because back in the day, a lot of times the people, specifically the women who were targeted with the witch trials were women who were strong figureheads in their communities. A lot of women who were midwives, who were herbalists, and who would care for people in the community, either for free or for pay, but this was also happening at the time when modern medicine was really becoming more popularized and who was assigned, like who was pursuing modern medicine were people of the nobility. They were men and these women who were able to provide healthcare and access to the poor became very easy targets. And so the success that they experienced as a midwife or as an herbalist or as anything else 
could catch the attention of people in power, of the church, of the government, and lead to them being killed. It also appears as hiding in fear, like you don't want to be seen at all. And it feel it's almost like an even deeper version of this, where with the self-sabotage, you're comfortable with a certain degree of attention. But after that, like you will immediately start putting yourself back into a safe space of attention. Hiding in fear, this is really just about being uncomfortable with any attention whatsoever. And so it's this desire to blend in, even if it's not what you want. Like maybe you do feel destined to be a coach, to be noticed, or to be some kind of entrepreneur, even like an influencer, but you just can't imagine opening your profile up from private, or you can't imagine talking about some of the things that you've been through because it's so painful and vulnerable. And that hiding in fear, that really was what seized most people during the witch trials, because anything could get you noticed. Anything that could get you noticed was dangerous. So, for example, having red hair, rejecting the advances of noble men who wanted sexual relations with you, anything that could like have you stand out became something to fear. And so the natural default setting for safety was to hide and live in fear and just keep your head down and obey. And that was really what was something that so many, I mean, women, but really everybody had to keep in mind during these hundreds of years, essentially it was a way to keep women in their place. And then We have witch wounds that result in economic loss. So just like I said that one of the few ways women were able to earn a living was through midwifery and through herbalism and kind of being a village healer would often have to give that up or they were afraid to actually earn a living from that because there was a chance that pursuing that livelihood could bring them danger, could bring them imprisonment, could bring them death. And so you often see that in witch trials too, is that you couldn't rely on the income from things that that would give you some semblance of power in that society. And so you carry that into this life now. It's something that, I mean, it's in the underpinnings of all misogyny and the patriarchy. And I say that like for both men and women, but it's it that one's really difficult as well. And if you don't identify as spiritual or you feel like there's none of that really identifies with you, a lot of times being so viscerally against this idea of spiritual practices or of you embracing anything like that, a lot of times that can be its own wound in the sense that Anything that seemed otherworldly, anything that seemed beyond what was scientifically known or approved of or even approved of through the church, you know, oftentimes that leads to people now like not even wanting to be open to it, oftentimes because people were forced to turn on each other. I mean, how many children and women were tortured into accusing each other? of witchcraft, of accusing each other of treason and things like that. And so it really truly is a wound that everybody carries and they just carry this different form of it that came from this, you know, patriarchal phenomena that, that resulted in what was essentially a mass femicide.
Although, you know, many men were also killed, killed as witches as well. Yeah. And I've been doing some research since I had that moment coming out of the bathroom. And, you know, one thing that was interesting is it sounds like from the research that I've done, which is mostly Wikipedia, it seems like almost every culture has witchcraft as a concept and that people have been accused of witchcraft and killed like recently, like in 2008 in Ghana, 11 people were killed being accused of witchcraft. So part of it is this history and there is a present component of that. Like it's not all hundreds of years ago. Some of these things are happening today or in the 2000s. So absolutely. I mean, I believe like in some states it was still illegal to identify as a witch like up until the 90s they were exempt from like you know religious freedom it's truly wild like how you think of it as being so long ago and a lot of times you know our culture around it like you know popular culture kind of views it views the witch trials through this lens of like ooh, maybe they really were witches right it's kind of like spooky spooky and in actuality, it loses it. What it does is it tones down the travesty of what it was. Right. It really, truly was like just such a mass killing of right. like thousands of people, like senseless, brutal murders, and specifically targeted toward women. And when we look at how our society is set up now, you can't ignore the impact that the witch trials had because it essentially ended any kind of matriarchal structure that had previously been there and solidly placed women in a box where we were told to be quiet and not be noticed and remain powerless and be happy with it. And it imprisoned men into that as well as to rejecting anything that was feminine because to be feminine and be powerful was to also run the risk of dying, of being killed. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so interesting because I feel like stepping out of the closet as a witch and have been kind of, you know, talking about it a little bit on social media and and peeking out from hiding. And I have experienced just a small taste of, I think, the vitriol that I was scared about. But I, I wrote an article talking about how professionalism can be used as a euphemism for transphobia, uh, all different kinds of things, like that's not professional racism, saying that your hair isn't professional if you're wearing black and you have natural hair, or if you are identify as a man, but then you are wearing makeup, you know, that's not professional all these ways. And it ended up stirring up this debate in a group that I'm in. And some people really disagreed with me. And, you know, one person, she was like, oh, and, and I was talking about, you know, dressing as a woman, having a low cut top, da, da, da. And her comment was, who are you to talk about this as a white witch woman? You just want to be a slut. And, oh. and 
you know, luckily I didn't take it so personally. It was so kind of extreme and it's not someone that I know and, you know, all these different factors. But I feel like it was just a taste of the vitriol that currently exists towards women taking up space, taking a stand, having an opinion, wanting to be sexy or not sexy. Like, I don't think there's one way that you have to be, but women being themselves and dressing the way they want, whatever that is, whether it's incredibly modest or incredibly sexy or somewhere in between, it does feel like it's present day, you know, for some people, it's a physical safety thing present day. And for other people, it's a, you know, an an emotional safety thing where when you do come out in this way, some people are not going to like it. And some people are gonna really dislike it. Right. I mean, if I were you, I'd be printing up t-shirts that says white witch slut, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm with you on all of that. And really like it's, I would say it's like more akin to what trans people experience all the time, because especially trans women, you know, it's a literal, literal risk for them to disclose that they are trans, right? And there's all this debate, you see it on TikTok all the time. People saying that like trans women who go on dates with straight men, they're tricking them or they owe it to them to say before they even meet up that they're trans or they should tell them on the date, yada, yada. And it's a literal risk. Like trans women, like, you know, there have been plenty of cases where the mere disclosure of having been trans has resulted in their murder because some men also because of the patriarchy can like they have such a visceral reaction to it they've been conditioned to like think this way will have will literally kill women kill trans women for quote-unquote tricking them right and i mean if that's like probably more akin to you know anything that people would have experienced back then during that like time of the witch trials is that like visceral fear that anything you say or anything you do or don't do could lead to like an immediate death or the death of somebody you love. Yeah. And then, you know, I I think we live in this world where a lot of times it's kind of like, oh, it's a patriarchy, but mostly that's in the past and women can vote now, you know, and women can have jobs and women can have mortgages and credit cards and you know, we're not property anymore, like all of these things that we didn't have in the past. And and I mean, it's similar to white supremacy and all of these things where it's like that was in the past, slavery was in the past, patriarchy Mm -hmm. was in the past, all of this. But when you look at the statistics of who are the world leaders and who are making the films that we watch and who are writing the films and TV shows that we watch and who is in a corporate management position, the statistics in almost every industry are appalling, right? That in terms of like management and positions of power, one statistic from 2018 is like the top 250 domestic films, 92 of them were, percent of them were directed by men. This is like three years ago. And so like Hollywood that is 
you know, in a lot of ways, the meaning making machine, the culture creating machine of North America and, and Canada and the West at large is controlled by men. So it's really interesting to kind of put these pieces together of women having to stay small and not say anything and not make too much money and not take up too much space and not be too opinionated. And it's still working. Right. It's still working. And like, you know, I think that's why we're seeing such a rise now in the identification of spiritual non-religious as like, as like a religious identity. I mean, I think the stat now is that more millennials than ever before don't identify with an actual organized religion. And that's a trend that we're noticing that people are starting to stray away from these old traditional structures. And I think that it's also why we're seeing like so many women who just are taking back their power and taking back like what they care about and shamelessly just owning themselves and owning everything that they love. I mean, like every time this year around this time, we always see the pumpkin spice <laughs> We've got lots of people who are pumpkin spice nuts, myself included. And then we see people who love to hate on the basic white bitches with their pumpkin spice. And pumpkin spice is just the, that's just like the, they're the basic spices of any pie. I mean, like I've been, you know, I've been baking since I was 11. Like the same three spices are basically used in every good pie. So it's just the fact that when women decided, oh, I'm going to put this in my coffee and start enjoying it for me rather than making a pie for the people I care about, Mm -hmm. that that's when people take issue with it. And I even remember being like three or four years old and I was in the car with my mom and my sister was a toddler and my sister made a face or she put her finger in her nose or did something while looking at like the car next to us. And I laughed about it to my mom. And she said something like, you have to be careful about making faces at other drivers. You don't know who has a gun in their car. And I think most women have a story, something like that, where your mother or your father or somebody has told you that the world is scary for women and that you yeah. have to be careful and you can't make faces at people. You can't dress a certain way. You can't do yeah. this or that. And it's all from these witch wounds that tell you, you need to stay small and stay in your right. lane because to be noticed is to be endangered. Right. Okay. So let's get to the solution. If people are identifying, they're resonating with this, like what can help? There's going to be a lot of things that you need to do. And and namely, a lot of it is going to be like mental work, right? Like mental and spiritual work of owning your power and really having to get into who modeled this behavior for me that I needed to stay small, that I needed to reject these certain aspects of myself. Because essentially, and I'm actually in the process of writing a book all about like how we manifest like our ideal lives. But really what shapes this kind of default setting inside your brain to keep you safe and keep you alive was modeled to you when you were young. So between the ages of like zero to seven, I mean, like, and then things just kind of pile on on top of that as time goes on. But you, you got this idea when your brain was like the most flexible and like Mm -hmm. developing and learning you saw things that you may not remember 
that showed you what was safe and what was not safe in the world, what would get you love and what would get you rejected. And even the smallest things can really have such an impact. So you awareness is a big part of it. And really asking yourself constantly, where is this coming from? Does this align with what I want? Like, does, is this a thought or is this a belief that is going to get me closer to where I want to be? Or is this a thought that is keeping me safe and stuck? Because your brain prefers not for things not to change. So even good changes. So say like you're trying to make a million dollars. Your brain is going to fight that because it's never had a million dollars before. So it doesn't know that that's safe. It's saying, well, I don't know what rich people problems are, but I know what these problems are. So even if even though I don't like it, I know how to handle these. And so I'd rather stay here. So you have to constantly really challenge where things are coming from and why you're feeling that way. And if this is yours or if this is learned. The other part of this, too, is really seeking out active role models who can show you what you're capable of having. And the more you identify with them, the better. So a great example of this is if you have like an inexplicable like celebrity crush or like like a celeb that you just love so much and you really don't have any reason to, you just like really love them. That's usually what your brain is identifying yourself in someone else and what you're mm-hmm. capable of having in someone else. And it doesn't matter. Like if you can identify with people either because they talk like you, they have a similar background to you. They look like you, they have what you want. Like you want people from all different kinds of categories to really show you and show your brain. It's safe to have what I want. And, you know, of course, none of this is really like it, it, it doesn't work against not a magic cure all for systemic oppression and, you know, these deep seated cultural institutions that are designed to keep people oppressed and powerless. So mm-hmm. if we can accept that, you know, we're all manifesting all the time and that includes the good and the bad. And if we can accept that, that like we're always manifesting things be like that hold us back because our brains want to keep us small, then it's easy to take to like make the next jump, which is that society as a whole has manifested institutions and built institutions around this like collective shadow that's designed to keep people small and keep people pitted against each other and keep people disempowered. Yeah. But the only way we can really like we have to do the work of, you know, anti-racism and learning what we can to dismantle those to dismantle our own internalized racism and to, you know, really not just be like, oh, baseline, like, you know, I'm okay. You have to see the more people you can collect as role models to show you evidence that you can beat those systems, the more it's going to feel possible for you. Yeah. And that's really just the starting place. But honestly, like the more you feel that that is true and it's a belief because you can believe something with your mind and your body and your subconscious will fight it because they don't believe it's true. They're like, wait, 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 that's change. I don't know if that's safe. I don't think that's safe. And so we have to continually expose ourselves to the people who are who have achieved what we wanted and are succeeding. 
right. the more we can like feed that to ourselves and experience it through others, the safer our brain is going to feel with that result. The more it's going to say, oh, that's okay. Oh, that's fine. I can do right. that. That's okay. Yeah. And I just, I see what you're saying as partially just like detoxing from patriarchy, brainwashing and any other, you know, oppressive, like whether it's white supremacy, ableism, whatever other brainwashing you got that told you, you can't have the life you want, or you can't be as powerful or loud or as opinionated as you want. And I think awareness is such a big step. And then I love this idea of like really nourishing new belief systems via celebrities or folks that you're drawn to in kind of any kind of space. And I, I notice myself doing that intuitively where I'll like get obsessed with one person and then I love podcasts. So I'll listen to like a ton. I'll just like, you know, right now I'm listening to a bunch of Denise Stuffield Thomas, who's a money, money mentor. But I just like literally search in the podcast app, like Denise Duffield Thomas, and then downloaded like a bunch of like her on this show and her on that show and her on this show. And just like, am kind of building these new neural pathways in my brain via, you know, listening to her, give her perspective on the world and her perspective on those of us socialized as women making money and, and what the impact of that is to build this like new neural network again that exactly what you're saying where it's like it is safe to make money you can make money in an ethical way you can make money in a way that helps people but it's just having her tell her story and then other people's stories over and over again to you know help shift that so i love i love those answers And my next question is, let's talk about money. This is your specialty. How does the witch wound impact making money? I mean, you kind of already explained that. So maybe let me ask if folks listening are feeling like, oh, yeah, that might be what part of my money block is. How can they move forward with the money part of the witch wound in particular? That's such a great question. Really, like... You have to stop judging yourself because it's, first of all, it's not getting you anywhere. But another big part of this is that you have to release a fixation with money. Oftentimes, like Mm. when somebody has a wound around economic security or economic oppression from that, like from that time, it really manifests as like this obsession around money and so this obsession around security. And it feels like you have to sacrifice either money or happiness. And with that, it often feels like there's enough, like you can't imagine having enough money to feel safe. It often shows up as spending all the money that you get. Right. A lot of people, especially entrepreneurs, will talk about, oh, yeah, I can make a ton of money and then it's gone. Like it's gone in the within a few days. It feels like it's all claimed. And how you have to really like approach that is it's twofold. So partially you got to like start getting saved money, blah, 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 blah. We just talked about that. But a lot of this is also 
understanding that you have to like work with where you are. So if Mm. you have this tendency to spend your money down, something that I tell people to do is start using a budgeting software like YNAB, you need a budget. Mm -hmm. They do not sponsor me. I'm just obsessed with them. I wish they would. They should sponsor me. (laughs) But (laughs) And what it does is their whole concept is every dollar needs a job. And so you see all of your money and you can earmark it for stuff throughout the month. And when you use that as your place to go for spending money rather than looking in your bank account, you can basically like get the satisfaction of having spent everything, quote unquote, because even if you're like putting a certain amount amount aside for savings, even when you're doing that, it gives your brain the satisfaction of having, quote unquote, spent all your money rather than continually checking your bank account and seeing these big numbers using that kind of software where you can earmark it. It gives you the satisfaction of like being poor, like having everything (laughs) that you have without actually having done it. If that makes sense. Right. You get to live in this space of like, okay, it's all spent. I don't have to worry because I don't have any money. Because even if you're taking it, taking that money and putting it in categories like, oh, I'm going to, you know, save for like, I'm going to do an emergency fund and I'm also going to like save for a new car or a down payment on a house. Like, even if you're doing the responsible things with your money, you're still getting that nervous system hit that makes you feel safe again because you, quote unquote, don't have any money now. Does that make sense? Yeah, I can't. I started an emergency fund maybe a year ago. And the psychological impact of that is so profound. I'm like, I don't know if I fully understand it, but it feels so good to have that buffer of cash that's liquid and, and that I can take money out of it and then, you know, top it up. If I do need to take money out of it, it's like, yeah, I feel like I need to tell everyone that they need to do that, even though it sounds like the most like boring thing ever (laughs) to do. It's like psychologically so, so helpful, even like I still have some debt. And I could take all the money out of the emergency fund and put it immediately on the debt. But somehow having that buffer, it just has shifted things for me. Right. Then the thing to keep in mind with that, too, is that it doesn't have to be big. Like a lot of people feel like they need to start with, well, if I'm going to save for an emergency fund, it needs to be for three months. Well, the average like emergency vet bill, like say something happens to your pet. The average emergency like on a like unplanned vet bill is about fifteen hundred dollars. So even yeah. just setting aside something like that, I mean, even just setting aside if you're starting really from really from a baseline, like even setting aside five hundred dollars. I mean, how I remember having a really janky car years ago and you know like if I needed some kind of big repair, it was generally around like $400, $500. That gave me that feeling of like, holy shit, I'm going to be bankrupt now. Right. But if I had just had that small amount set to the side, I would have felt so much better. And, you know, of course, like so much of this comes with the caveat of like having privilege and having a certain support system. But again, you can't let those things tell you that these are out of reach. 
you know, and that's why it's so important to continually like continually follow those role models that you have who show you that you're capable of having all of this. Yeah. And I think there is like systemic oppression is real. And, and I don't think either of us are trying to say that it's not in this conversation. And then there's what we do have control over, right? Right. Like we do have control over our thoughts and our actions and where we go from here. And I think it's been interesting doing my own money work and even kind of coming back to the witch wound and like thinking, oh, I have a lot of privilege. I grew up in Canada and, you know, I'm in a white family and middle class and all of that. But even with that, some of the thoughts that I've been working through are, oh, if I say I'm a witch, my family won't like me. And then my security net will be gone. Right. So it's been interesting to even explore how all of these things interplay and how, okay, that thought is not serving me. And so how can I trust my intuition? You know, my, my new thought that I'm, I've been bringing forward is that even if shit hits the fan, my intuition will help me get through. Right. And, you know, that's where strategies like meditation, affirmations, um, EFT, all of these things are, are going to be helpful in different ways. And really like looking at how you can do, you can put your own spin on these things. So for example, like, you know, meditation, like things that can be meditation, watching TV is a form of meditation. You're in a meditative state. When you watch TV, driving can be a form of meditation. There's so much that, that can be helpful for us to allow us to process and release things. A lot of these things that hold you back so when you, uh, when you have this understanding that, hey, I'm in a meditative state when I'm scrolling social media or I'm watching TV, then you can start to look at what are the things that are feeding into me and making me feel even better versus the things that are going to kind of play into that smallness. If anyone's ever gotten obsessed with a really good TV show that's like so fun and it just makes you feel so good, like you know exactly what I'm talking about because it's telling you something that you need. I mean, when Bohemian Rhapsody came out, I'm obsessed with Queen. Uh, (laughs) When Bohemian Rhapsody came out, I saw that movie four times in theaters. Four times because I was just so lit up and so fired up about like everything. And I didn't even have a business then, but it was me seeing somebody who knew in the depths of their soul that they were talented and deserving Mm -hmm. of like fame. And for so long, I had denied this part of myself that said, I'm meant to be famous. I'm meant to be well-known. I'm meant to be a public figure. And I have the talent to back that up. And that fed me and it powered me so much. And it was really like a huge turning point for me when I did eventually get the idea to start a business and to pursue this aspect of of my career. And that was what drove me when, when I started pursuing this. And even though I was seeing somebody else play this 
person and their drive, you know, that just having that exposure to another person who deeply knew in their soul, like, this is what I meant to be. I'm born to stand out. I'm born to be a public figure allowed me to accept that aspect of myself a lot more. And now yeah. I say it like without even batting an eyelash, of course, I want to be famous. I'm meant to be, a, I'm meant to like have the best selling books and be on the speaking tour and do all the things that I want to do. And I'm not going to feel any shame or weirdness around that because now I feel fully expanded in it. Like I've had enough people show me that there's nothing wrong with wanting those things. Right. Yeah. So anyone listening, if you're obsessed with a certain celebrity or a certain show or a certain movie, like follow that and, and be curious about what the message is that you're getting, what's, what's being healed in you from watching this thing or listening to this podcast or reading this book, how, whatever medium you love works, but trust that because I think, again, we're like, I know that I was taught like as a kid, TV rots your brain. And I was taught that like Oprah was fluff and like garbage kind of. And mm -hmm. so like, it's really just trusting your intuition, rebuilding that trust. It's like, I love this, then that's good for you. That's your medicine. Right. Go with exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. So if people want to follow you or get to know you better or work with you, how can they find you? Where are you at? How can people stay connected? Well, the easiest place to find me is I have a Facebook group with lots of free training and you can get there by going to five, number five, fivefigurelaunchqueens.com. That'll take you right there. And you can also find me on social media with some combination of Jay Silva. And that's Jay. On Instagram, I'm Jay underscore D-A-S-I-L-V-A. And I'm on TikTok as well. There I'm the millennial money. Amazing. So thank you so much for, for coming on and sharing all of this wisdom. I definitely learned a lot from this conversation. I'm sure everyone listening learned a lot. Everyone listening, definitely follow Jessie, learn from her. Maybe she's the celebrity you're obsessed with after listening to this interview. If she is, trust that. Get in her Facebook group, follow her on IG and TikTok. And yeah, is there anything else you want to share before we wrap up the podcast, Jesse? Is there anything I didn't ask you or, or anything else that would be helpful for folks to know? The one thing I will say that I think doesn't get said enough in manifestation is forget what you think you know. The first rule to manifestation is forget what you think you know. And I say that because you can't have a magical result if you can't open your mind and allow the magic to, to happen for you. The world doesn't have any hard and fast rules. I know it feels like it does, but it's not. Like there's somebody out there who's disproved some kind of belief that you right. have. Right, right. So just choose to forget these rules that you've set up for yourself. And if you're really struggling to like change your beliefs around something, then make that the manifestation you want, meaning manifest people who disprove it for you. I love it. 
Okay, thank you so much for being on. And to everyone listening, maybe you want to find your inner witch. Maybe there's a witch in you. And maybe not if, if it doesn't resonate at all. That's cool too. But be curious about that. Okay. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Bye. If you've resonated with this episode, I want to offer you a free private one-hour consultation with me. Through doing the deep inner work, my clients have been able to do things like quit the job they hate and land a job they love, or get their first paying clients in their dream business, and if they're a little bit further down the road, double their revenue. They've been able to fall in love and go to bed each night feeling satisfied and accomplished. In the consultation, we'll talk about what your dream looks like, what's getting in the way, and whether working together can help. Email me at brin at brinbamber.com to book.